Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Cup Duet Reviews, brought to you by Cup of Hemlock Theater. I am your host for this episode, Ryan Barakovich, co-artistic producer here at Cup of Hemlock, and I'm joined today by the always wonderful Jillian Robinson, associate producer here at the company. How are you doing today, Jill? I'm doing well, Ryan. Thank you so much. Oh, How are you? you? I'm doing great. I'm excited to talk about this piece, because today we are going to be Overviewing the production by Lighthouse Immersive titled The Library at Night, which is conceived and directed by Robert Lepage, inspired by the works of Alberto Mangel. And it is currently playing in Toronto until at least June 26th, might possibly get extended, hard to kind of say, because it is a kind of piece that as long as they have the staff to run it, it theoretically could go on indefinitely. So we'll see <laughs> uh, how it goes. Uh, so I'm excited to dive into this piece. It was uh, a quite an interesting, immersive virtual reality experience. Mm -hmm. But before we get into our impressions, I have to ask, what's in your cup? And I see you have a lovely background for those yes. who are listening just in terms of audio. Maybe you want to describe that for their benefit. Absolutely. So behind me, I have a virtual background of several bookshelves with uh, some multicolored uh Looks like hardcover bound books with some cute little library lanterns and some uh, library ladders to reach all the way to the top shelf. No book forgotten. Yeah. Um, so that's the background behind me. Um, and I'm just wearing a little kind of like a library kind of cardigan today. Uh, cozy vibe. And my what I'm drinking is throat coat tea. Uh, at the time of this recording, I have a couple of shows coming up this weekend, so I have to keep my throat um, in check, in good health, but I'm drinking out of my bell mug, a character uh, who loves books. So I thought that was quite appropriate. Um, yeah, and I'm I'm so excited to to unpack this virtual reality journey we went on, right? Yes. But yes. Uh, what's in your cup? I yes. know. Well, so I don't have an exciting background because my computer is old and doesn't let me do that. But um, but I am drinking uh, just coffee today. But it's out of my University of Toronto mug because I had to think. Well, first of all, there's a little coat of arms that has little books. I don't know if anyone could see that, but right <laughs> between the crown and the beaver, there's two mm -hmm. little books. So it's you know not as uh, whimsical as yours, but it is still on theme. And I. Uh, as a graduate student at University of Toronto, spend a lot of my time in Robarts Library. So if I had to think about the library, that means the most to me. Currently, that's the one. So uh, U of T mug it is. Okay. Yes. So let's let's dive right in. Um, mm -hmm. Kind of as per usual, when we have these sort of reviews of productions that are currently ongoing, we want to have a little bit of a non-spoiler general thoughts, kind of brief summary type discussion. And then we will put up some kind of spoiler shield where anything goes, uh, we can talk about whatever. So if you want to go into the production, not having certain things already revealed to you, we encourage you to stop watching after that point. But before we get to that, let's have yes. the pre the pre spoiler talk. So yeah. uh, I don't know if you want to start by just describing the piece before you get into your thoughts and impressions of it. Usually you toss that to me when you're hosting, but I'm happy right. to toss it to you here. Yeah, I mean I think we could teamwork it out a bit, but I'll I'll start us off. So um, just from from learning about the piece online, um, you kind of already know it's going to be a virtual reality experience, some sort of element of that, and. In the little preamble online too, it does say like you will be uh, journeying through a handful of libraries located around the world. So that's not technically a spoiler because it's on their website. 
But yeah, when you get there, the immersive shares a space with other immersive uh, events and experiences that are going on too. So you kind of find where the library at night sort of stall is and you go in, you wait for a tour guide to sort of bring you into the experience. And there's a little intro section, which yeah, kind of to me seemed like a preface or a prologue to the journey. And uh, you're in a, a room that's kind of like an older looking library space and uh, through lighting, you're kind of uh, directed, your attention is directed to certain plot points in this room. And then um, you get equipped with your VR uh, headset and uh, audio headset, and then you're brought into a sort of wooded library experience uh, where you just sit at your library chair and um, yeah, get wrapped up in the virtual reality of international libraries. Yeah. How do you think that went, Ryan? Do you have no, anything to add? I no, I think it's great. Something I'll, I'll kind of just add sort of even before the experience itself, like for those who are unfamiliar with this piece and the kind of Lighthouse Immersive as a company, these are the same people who do the immersive Van Gogh, immersive uh, Frida Kahlo, Gustav Klimt that you've probably received some targeted ads for if you're anything like us. Yeah, so... I think that kind of knowing that it's the same company that does those gives a sense of what you might be into, that it is taking historical sites or works of art and kind of putting you right in the thick of them and using uh, new technology and media to really put you in contact with these works in a way that you maybe wouldn't otherwise be. I know I, I have never done, I don't know if you've done any of the immersive uh, artwork exhibits that they've done. No, I haven't actually. Yeah. This was, yeah, this is my first one. Neither have I. I've read a lot of think pieces, you might say, on like, oh, is this a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Is this like a, mm -hmm. a, removing the artwork from its aura, as Walter Benjamin would say in the mm -hmm. age of mechanical, or in this case, digital or virtual reproduction? We don't need to unpack that here because that's not really the point of this production. But I think there's a lot of interesting discourse surrounding this type of work and having uh, this one that isn't focused around a specific painter or artist's body of work, but instead a kind of walking tour through different libraries around the world, I think is an interesting use of this format that mm -hmm. is maybe pushing beyond and it kind of, I don't know if it takes a visionary auteur like Robert Lepage to kind of think through this idea, but it definitely seems like a, a logical step for, for his career, his body of work, and kind of definitely seems to fit into uh, that sort of cohesive oeuvre, we might call it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So before we get into the spoiler zone, just what were your general impressions? We've talked about what the piece is, but what did you think without getting into too much fine detail? Yeah, I thought it was it's phenomenal. Um, I'm someone ever since I was little, um, my parents have instilled like uh, travel and culture is like a as a huge sort of educational opportunity. So I've had the privilege of um, going to Europe and, and going to different places around the world. And I, so I've, I've always had a huge knack for just immersing myself, uh, in a, a um, like an old country or city and learning all about everything from like arts to literature to just history. And so this was a very refreshing experience for me, especially coming out of the pandemic and not having been able to travel over the last couple of years. I, uh, it was fascinating, like to be able to experience 10 different libraries from 10 different cities, 10 different cultures, 
and have sort of a different story blueprint of exploring through each of them. Uh, Cause to me, every one of them was a little bit different. So it always kind of kept me on my toes. It, uh, it wasn't like, you know, you, you're so used to entering a museum or entering an art gallery and you get the little audio guided tour and you know, you're going to walk through and see the picture and have it described to you. And then you move on to the next hall and this was every library was kind of the, its story was told in a different way. And I thought that was really fascinating. That to me definitely added and infused the theatrical element. Whereas, you know, I was kind of interested and intrigued to think, is this just going to be a sort of tourist attraction to each of these libraries, which also would have been amazing and super stimulating for me. But it was when you get into each library the way that each library is presented, uh, there's some of them uh, involve certain artistic flares and there's like a reasoning behind that. So after our spoiler image will be put on the screen, we can dive more into that. But yeah, I liked that. I was always in anticipation of, of what was going to happen. It wasn't like after the third library, okay, I kind of understand what this is. This is very much like I'm just traveling through old libraries around the world, which is super stellar and awesome for me regardless, but it was like, oh, this is where there's the theatrical element too, because each, li like I said, each library story was uh, given an artistic flair that the one before it didn't have, in my opinion. So, or, or didn't, yeah, like showed a different way. Hmm. So um, yeah. And I, I again thought it was just going to be a virtual reality experience. So I kind of liked the intro flourish and sort of the whole ambiance around you, um, setting sort of like setting the stage for you as the audience before you put that virtual reality, before you put the virtual reality goggles on. Um, so again, we can maybe unpack specifics post spoiler image as well, but, um, yeah, it definitely exceeded my expectations across the board. Yeah. But how about you, no. Ryan? I would agree. So you prefaced your kind of appraisal with your travel enthusiasm there. So something I'll say about myself, which I don't feel like I've ever really gotten into on here, but like I am someone who doesn't really have the travel bug. And I know who uh, that's talking to people like yourself who really like I've never really traveled. It wasn't a, like a part of how I was raised or upbringing. And I've never really kind of found the appeal and perhaps you and your infinite wisdom are working on shaking me out of that and we'll see how that goes but um but what i do love are books and libraries and i've always felt like well why do i need to travel to such and such place when i could just read about it and i kind of i know to the magic of live theater we could kind of unpack oh you know what's the difference between these two things but yeah like as someone who's never really felt the compulsion to travel i will say Getting to sit in a chair in Toronto, the city I live in, and have the ability to, through the wonderful technology that is available to us, feel like I've traveled without actually having to leave the city I live in, and get to see exactly the types of sites that I might be most excited to visit in these other cities, and not just cities, but also periods of history, as we will discuss, mm -hmm. probably post-spoiler. Uh, yeah, I, I thought this was like a very intriguing, like exciting way, and like, yeah, it's it took someone like me who, uh, you know, isn't necessarily enthused by the this wonderlust of, ooh, gotta see these sites, 
to be like, aha, but what if these sites were all libraries and there's all these cool books and talks about the history of books? And I'm like, okay, you got me there. Uh, color me intrigued. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, that that is my kind of general thoughts. Appraisal. I thought it was really fun. Fun is the word I would use because, mm -hmm. you know, when you talk about like a museum walking tour or listening to the headset, I feel like a lot of people might, you know, to each their own, think that that might sound a little dry or boring or dull. But I, I think, yeah, it was, uh, you know, it wasn't flashy or I was expecting it to be very flashy, but it was kind of just mm. like, this is what it is. This is, you know, we have the technology, but we're just using it to show you these kinds of things or not like it wasn't necessarily as much of a spectacle as I was expecting it to be. And I think that's for the better that mm -hmm. this is just like a. You know, see the show. It also wasn't terribly expensive for something that kind of involves technology, like which, yep. uh, yeah, I think I think our tickets were like forty bucks, roughly. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so I think you know you, it, it's worth what you're paying for, and it's yeah, not a huge deal, but it's very fun. It's an exciting journey. There's elements of interactivity and choose your own adventure that we'll talk about for in a minute, but yeah, overall. I, I would encourage people to see it. I think it's it's a good time and you'll probably mm -hmm. find something you enjoy in it regardless of whether you're more like Jill or more like myself. Exactly, yeah. Great. Cool. Is this the time, I think, to... Uh... I think this might be the time to... So yeah, for once again, this is playing at the Lighthouse, Lighthouse Immersive Space here in Toronto until at least June 26th, TBD about after that. So if you're able to see it, we encourage you to do so. You'll probably have fun. That's the key mm -hmm. word. Nice. And click, I think we just turned on our little spoiler book lamp that's Ooh. showing up on the screen if you're watching this on YouTube. <laughs> um, okay, so there's a lot we could talk about. I, I, I There's a couple of topics, if, since I'm hosting, I guess I'll sort of lead the ship Take here. The reins, or yeah. Lead, lead our Captain Nemo submarine, if you will. Um, yes. <laughs> but yeah, I want to, there's a few things uh, that I'd like to kind of use as entranceways. And the first one is that I want to talk about Alberto Mengel and this work as adaptation because, well, yeah, I've said on the show many times that I'm a bit of an adaptation specialist when it comes to my own academic research in theater and performance. And I, I think I want to talk about what even is this piece in terms of its relationship to the source material. Mm -hmm. Because yeah, Alberto Mengel, very like interesting writer, historian, uh, he's written fiction, nonfiction, and a very kind of focused interest in the history of books and literature. And uh, something that I think is interesting is the title of this piece that we saw is The Library at Night, which is a book of his that I have right here for those mm -hmm. looking on the screen. Um, I took this out from the U of T library. Hey, the, that's like what I mentioned earlier um, <laughs> when this piece was announced. And I've actually just, it's funny, I've kind of come in and out of it. I haven't been reading it like sequentially or certainly not the only or main thing I'm reading right now. Just every, yeah, I've had it out for like over a month now or and every you know few days I'll just read a chapter. And it's interesting mm -hmm. because watching the production, you might expect that this book would be 10 chapters. Each chapter is one of the libraries, but it's actually not that. It's divided into like more, I believe more than 10 chapters. Uh, I could be wrong looking at the table of context, but it's organized thematically that it's the mm. library as myth, library as order, or a library as space, library as power, as shadow, et cetera, et cetera. I don't need to go through all of them. Yeah. Um, but it's essentially meditations on just the concepts of books and libraries and the sort of 
mystical relationship that a book lover has to libraries, what they've meant throughout history, what they've meant, different ideas they've engendered. And that's what Mm -hmm. each of those thematic subheadings are. And it goes through the history and key libraries very much. I'm pretty sure for the most part, everything we heard auditorily, which is also narrated by Mengele himself. So he basically gave a sort of fragmented audiobook version of some of the highlights from this book is what we're presented with here. But it's very much... Uh, there, well, there's a line in it that uh, every every library is an autobiography of its owner, because I could be paraphrasing this, but that we have, uh, yeah, and I think this also goes back to a line in uh, LePage's earlier piece, 887, where he says something very similar about how it's sort of a schematic of its owner's brain and the organizing principles that you use to put some books in one place really tells you a lot about the person who owns it. And I see this text that this is adapted from as... Not necessarily a history of libraries or even a sightseeing tour of libraries, but it is just a testament to this one individual's lifelong love affair with the concept of libraries and reading and engagement. And I kind of think it's on one hand, uh, we'll we'll get into this maybe more in the middle, that it's kind of, I don't know if this piece necessarily does justice to the exuberance that you get reading that book because it sort of pigeonholes it into these 10 libraries, yep. which isn't the structuring principle of the book itself. Oh, also, something else I'll add is that Miguel has another book that came out after this one called Packing My Library or Unpacking My Library, which I mm-hmm. have not read yet, so I won't comment on that one in particular. But I, I think it's interesting that this piece, despite being called the Library at Night, isn't labeled as adapted from the book of the same name by Mengele. It's inspired by Mengele. So mm. maybe it took passages from that too. Again, not in the position to do the comparative exercise of unpacking that library in particular. <laughs> um, but but I would like to read that one after I finish this one because I think, yeah, he's just a brilliant writer and uh, I'm loving immersing myself in his experience of this. But yeah. Uh, Sorry, I've been talking a lot. Do you want to add? No, that's okay. No, I, I just like, I feel like I was already on going to want to do this, but now that you've unpacked a little Mm -hmm. bit of Alberto Mengel's writings, like I definitely want to read the library at night for sure. Um, And then, yeah, I would love to read Unpack My Library too. I, that's another thing I, I appreciated about this experience is I did not know about this book or that something like this existed, but again, through like a theatrical threading of, or adaptation of this book, it, uh, it just added the the whole like layers that now I'm I'm kind of recalling back to our last duet review, Ryan, of unpacking lessons and forgetting. We've kind of just unearthed that like art has layers. And like with this piece, I felt it was like, like books have layers or like libraries have layers and like throughout the whole journey um, and, and by, you know, like you say, by this pigeonholing into each library, um, kind of like there's Alberto's words, but being used in a tactile setting. And I was like, oh my gosh, like not only are there it's the idea of the library, but there are different types of libraries and different types of libraries through the, like across history. Like it's not just all modern libraries we're unpacking. Right. And so, um, yeah, I think I would, I would love to read the book because I don't think it it would do what we like saw, but yeah, I would just, I would like to have that comparative sort of essay going on, I guess, in my mind. Yeah. Well, that's definitely what I had going in. Cause I think, what this piece does very interestingly 
And of course, adaptations and the sources that inspire them are their own independent works of art, but there obviously is a causal relationship between them, but they do have the right to stand on their own. That's like literally the founding gesture of adaptation studies as a discipline. What this piece does very well is it takes this kind of messy, thematic web that the book presents, which kind of is sort of what the, the title, The Library at Night, is. He says this in the very first chapter is that like in the daytime, the library has structure and order, but at night it kind of everything blends together. So, and I kind of think by spatializing it in terms of taking this web of themes and just compacting it into the specific libraries that inspired them and creating this 10 chapter structure around like tangible physical locations, as opposed to uh, just whatever thoughts and themes the author had in his mind when he sat down to write any one individual chapter. It's kind of like it's doing what you said earlier of kind of turning it into a walking tour or a sitting tour, in this case, spinning around in your chair tour. But it yeah. is, it's giving you the opportunity to travel through it in a way that uh, yeah, it forces it into a structure. And I don't think that's a bad thing because I, mm-hmm. I like short of just listening to an audiobook of this of this piece, I don't really know how you could necessarily do that justice without. Uh, yeah, go ahead. You want to? Yeah, this may just like blast us into a whole nother thing. But to me, it personified the books, hmm. yeah. personified the text. Not just personified the libraries. I'm talking about individual texts and we can get into more and more. But like, like I said earlier in my intro is each library to me had a different artistic flair or offering. And whether that be with the story, like the spoken text that was attributed to the library or the visuals that was attributed to the library, like sometimes both were working at the same time. But now that I'm meditating on what we're talking about, to me, it's like it gave by throwing this novel into a theatrical adaptation, the books are personified. There's some libraries where the books you see burning. There's some libraries where you find out the books can only be touched by certain people. There's some libraries where you find that the books have been neglected. They are now called the forgotten books. There's some where the books or scrolls or texts are act, are spun around in a ritualistic environment so it it or or books are surrounded by people who are spinning around and dancing so it's like to me each um yeah like not only was it magnifying these libraries from like a touristy and like interesting historical perspective but the texts that are found within the libraries Nemo's library those books are not in color we don't get to see their color we only see the black and white of the so to me it yeah, it, it like created, it, it made me feel like bad for the books or like have yes. pathos for the books. It made me want to read more books. It made me want to cherish like the information we retain from books. And so, yeah, that was that's just no, like a little... No, I, no I, I absolutely love what you just said here because yes, the books themselves, even more so than the libraries, are the protagonist of this piece, even more mm-hmm. so than Mengel as our kind of like bird's eye autobiographical narrator here. It is, he is telling the story of these books and the places where we might find them. And this, like in adaptation studies, is there's a lot of discussion about how, like, what do, what is an adaptation's relationship to the books, not just in the story that it takes from them, but actually the books themselves. Uh, Thomas Leach, a very important adaptation theorist, uh, he he has an essay from 2008 called Adaptation the Genre, where 
be sort of isolated, like what are some general traits that adaptations all have with each other. And a common one that he noticed in many adaptations, especially specifically film in this case, is that adaptations tend to emphasize books and words and authors in like that. Yeah, we often see like, I don't know, you could take the recent Little Women, the Greta Gerwig's mm-hmm. Little Women film about how it's not just the story of the Little Women, but it's also a meta commentary on female authorship and actually producing the book that, you know, meta textually is itself Little Women. It starts with this idea of the book that we see on screen in so many adaptations, as Leach says, begin with here's a book and we open it up and kind of like early Disney movie we go into the book because that is the vehicle through which the story's told even though it's not because what we're watching is a movie not reading a yeah. book yeah. and I, I kind of have uh, there's a quote I sort of wanted to bring up here from this book uh, Adaptation in Contemporary Theater by Francis Babbage mm-hmm. um, to kind of bring it to more of a theatrical angle because Leach's essay is mostly about a film that uh, she also kind of emphasized this idea of performing books as something that comes up a lot in contemporary theatrical adaptations. And if I could read this passage here, mm-hmm. um, these performances, quote, testify to the potency, not simply of narratives, but books themselves as talismanic yet vulnerable objects and celebrate the capacity of readers to make a text meaningfully their own, end quote. So yeah, yeah I think what better piece to be the subject of an adaptation than a piece that is all about celebrating books and kind of giving books their due, even when in this case, we're not encountering them through the vehicle of books. And that's also an interesting idea of, you know, and there's a lot of talk again in adaptation theory about how uh, we maybe privilege the source medium over the, the media that we are encountering it in. So even though we're not sitting down and reading a book when we go to a performance like Library at Night, are we still kind of creating this hierarchy of books, good theatrical performance or multimedia performance in this case, bad, or do they kind of enter this sort of dialogue with each other on more of a level yeah. playing field? Right. Um, I don't know if you have thoughts on any of that or what we can just No, I, I think I think so absolutely. And I think just like an added thing too to kind of go back to you absolutely nailing it on the head of like our books are our protagonists. And I, I was kind of unpacking that too. And um seeing it from because you're right like it is it's all about books we're literally immersed in the environment that the books are why you go to a library um well and to retain information which is inside books usually um but what I also like going into each one I was interested uh because with virtual reality experiences I'm like okay what is just happenstance and what is maybe staged because knowing like for vr or you know what are those called go go those types of cameras where you can like gopro exactly so it's like you know you can put that anywhere and then the information you get from that gopro is just whatever walks by or whatever sounds happen around that gopro so for this it was like was the the view of said library just kind of like placed and like we were actually just seeing living breathing bodies in the space and then afterwards Lepage et al had to like get consent from the people that were in the library when their GoPro was on or were these staged actors 
Now, there's some elements that absolutely is acted. Like I would say, like in Nemo's library, those are two actors. The ghost apparitions we get in Copenhagen, those are obviously actors. But the folks underneath, you're standing in Copenhagen, you're standing on a balcony looking down. The folks underneath are those just people using the library space for study. A couple of the libraries, and we can maybe unpack this down the line too, because I know, Ryan, it was on your mind. Some of the libraries have janitors. And we know that we're witnessing the library at night. So like that's usually when libraries and public spaces are sanitized. So like it was that um, staged. Is there a reason for that? So and then, for example, going into um, the at was it the Admont Library and the one in Austria? Yeah. Yeah. So um, having like the monks float in and you in, you know the fact that they're the only ones that can touch the book. And I'm like, OK, well, this is probably stage. I don't know. There was this weaving of like, what is reality? What is real time happening? And what is stage? And then kind of going into the stage thing, the Sarajevo one was absolutely staged because you had like a cellist walk into the scene. So that was just kind of an interesting, like play on virtual reality. Because again, talking about layers, it was like, what are what is reality, I guess, because like in especially going into the Library of Mexico City, like there was just seemed like everyday folks walking up and down the corridor and and we were just kind of standing there witnessing. But then there's dancers on the outside of the library windows doing a dance and apparently a regular occurrence, regular occurrence. But it was like it's very performative. So like were they selected specially that day to put on more of a performance? So I guess I was constantly being thrown into like what is fabricated? What is acting? What is the performance and what is real? And similar to what you said of these two mediums of like virtual reality, digitized life and this like books, uh, text as text, sort of like liveness versus mediatization, right? A tactile book versus like an audio book. I was constantly asking the question, what is acting and what is just real life (laughs) (laughs) that we're watching? Um, yeah. So. Oh, I love all that. Yeah. I think that's great. Um, we, we've circled around this a lot. So maybe, maybe that's the time to kind of just get into our actual experience experiences of this walkthrough journey uh Mm -hmm. before we get to the vr itself you mentioned in your uh you know preamble about the production that there is this first room that you go into that is kind of a self-enclosed a bit of a prologue or a preface i like that terminology you used um what were your thoughts just on this room before we get to the actual more interactive 10 library vr segment yeah so finally enough the room's ambiance is kind of like what my background what it looks like and what i've described mm-hmm. earlier and it was very much we, we were kind of brought into just like this rectangular room and every wall was flanked with books um some of the walls had scrim over top of the books because basically once and there was a there was like a main table in the middle of the room um and some benches along the side as well and um some like windows with like fake foliage and raindrops coming down so and it was dark outside these windows so it's like you're literally entering a library at night and you have a, the guide there saying like you know feel free to look around um so instantly you know i i with immersive experiences similarly in the grim night review we did i'm like i am always like 
front line, like exploring instantly. So, you know, you walk around and you see like an Alice in Wonderland, you see like Tolkien, you see these like, you, you see there was like a, a textbook from Columbia University. So there's just like an eclectic blender, um, use that term a lot in our direct, or do I reviews, uh, eclectic blender of text and uh, ones that you're familiar with, one that you know are historically relevant, one that you're like, hmm, I haven't read that, but I should read that or it's on my list. Um, and then of course, there's like little artifacts around, like you would find in like a library, there's a study desk with some, with like a, a book open. Um, so yeah, so you're very, there's, there's portraits, so you're kind of like immersed in in this like old timey study library. And then the guide says like um, the initial experience is about to begin. The initial presentation is about to begin and lights will kind of go off and on. So like safety first, you know, feel free to wander, but at your own sort of uh, pace. And then there was like, yeah, a little intro presentation and um, lights would would uh, or spotlights would sort of illuminate certain objects or certain areas of the room that would obviously if darkness is surrounding you. You're enticed to follow the light. So yeah. you would go to, and they were talking about, um, uh, they were talking about the library of Sarajevo. You would go to the wall that was illuminated. And then that was the wall that had like the scrim behind it. And the books that you saw that were books are now battered and burnt books because, you notice once you go into the immersive experience that the library of Sarajevo went up in flames during the war. You they unpack the whole Alexandria um, ex, like library experience with like the picture that they have um, there too. I'm I'm like probably not doing this justice, but no, you're doing um, I realize now that I'm saying this that this prologue preface was giving us little bite-sized pieces of the actual libraries we were about to embark on. And yeah. And then once that's done, like I said, we kind of, you kind of step out of the experience for a hot second to get, learn the ropes of your VR goggles. And then the guide, like every fun Disney movie where there's like a big castle and there's secret library walls uh, pushes a wall (gasps) and you enter this like birch wood, um forest that the the floor of the forest are actually pages like the the textiles or pages of books and then you look up and you're like oh it must be like tree leaves and no it's actually like green or teal bound books hanging from from like the uh birds the ceiling books, like, like birds yeah. made of books and then uh there's several rows of um old-timey library oak cedar tables with uh, matching kind of binny um chairs and the little you know stereotypical like green desk lamps um and then you sit and put on your goggles and you we get in there um yeah. yeah and then once we can i guess i'll i'll before we go into the goggles ryan i'll toss back to you if you want to add anything yeah. about what yeah, like a couple like you summed it up very well. I have like a couple thoughts about this prologue room because while I think it was necessary to have something that kind of brought us into the world and kind of very much did kind of have this prologue feel and sort of established a lot of themes and things that we're going to see as we go. I kind of, uh, there were a few things that I was a little iffy on in this room as just, well, one, it, it felt very much like an escape room. I don't know if you've ever done mm-hmm. an escape room. But yeah, yeah, yeah. 
because it was just like such a confined space and we were in there with like two other couples um, that we were kind of like, okay, we're trapped in here, what's happening and we can explore and maybe we'll find something and especially finding out there was a wall that spun around to lead to a secret passage and almost kind of felt like, oh, are we looking for something specific? Are we, is this a game almost? And I was also afraid to touch anything because I wasn't sure if we were allowed. I, I don't know. If, I don't know. Cause like, I don't know. I go to a library, I see all these books. The first thing I want to do is like pull things off. Like you're, like, you're reading it. Like, but, but I'm like, Oh wait, I probably shouldn't. These are props. This is a set. So, and a lot of this, I think came down to the manicured feel of the whole thing had. It didn't really feel like it was inviting of mm. that kind of full exploration. And probably because it just was like a small space where, pretty much everything to look at was just on the perimeter of it with the exception of like one table in the middle. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It kind of had more of like a ga art gallery feel than an actual like immersive space where you can explore. Like you could look at everything on the walls and, but yeah, I, I don't know. Like I kind of, I was waiting to see like, okay, what's going to happen here. And then we kind of just had this lovely little monologue and then moved on to the other room. The other thing I'll say, uh, in terms of the directing our focus and attention with the lights, I think it was interesting because it kind of created a sense of structure for this room. But again, that maybe kind of inhibited our capacity to explore it. And because mm -hmm. you think of an immersive piece as I get to choose my own adventure, like at one point, it's funny, like you were looking at one thing on the table and I, you hadn't yet noticed that the lights changed to direct attention to this painting of the Tower of Babel on the wall during yeah. a part where, and I kind of poked you on the back and pointed be like, look, we're supposed to look here now. And after yeah, I did yeah, that, yeah. I'm like, after I did that, I'm like, I probably should have just let you explore and do your thing. But I'm <laughs> like, you might be missing something important. I didn't know what was like. A, um, so yeah, like I, I think it was, to me, the setup of that room wasn't as inviting to free exploration as I might've liked. But mm -hmm. then you get to the VR and that's kind of entirely self-directed or at least more so mm -hmm. self-directed. But yeah, like I, I liked it. I think it was necessary to have a kind of prologue. In fact, one mild critique I have about the entire experience that I might as well just say now is that I would have liked to have something like that prologue also at the very end to put a cap right. on it. Because yeah. after you completed the 10 rooms, you just kind of took off your headset and okay, you can go. And like, it yeah. might've been nice to have something that was like a definitive end, especially yeah. since if you happen to get through your rooms faster than other people doing the experience at the same time, you weren't sure, like, do I sit and wait? Do I leave? Like, so yeah, yeah I, I think these kinds of bookend, bookend framing devices are helpful. I, I just feel like they could have maybe been more organically weaved into the essence of this type of interactive experience. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I think I agree with that too. Um, there was a lot of, there was some moments of just like, I'll go with the flow of like, what, yeah, what's next? I guess we're getting our VR headsets out of, I guess we're, which I didn't mind too much, but, but oh, yeah. I, it's a very yeah. light critique here. But, right, right. Um, but let's put on our headsets and talk yes. about what it, so I kind of, Obviously, so there were 10 rooms. I'll just in no particular order, I'll say that the 10 libraries around the world were in Ottawa, Washington, D.C., the Library of Alexandria from ancient Egypt, uh, mm -hmm. Sarajevo, one of them was in Japan, uh, Copenhagen, Paris, Mexico City, Vienna, and a fictional library in Captain Nemo's submarine from 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Yeah. So those were the 10 rooms. And when you put on the headset, the kind of virtual sandbox environment that you're in is like a birch forest with these 10 different mm -hmm. icons that create a 360. Yeah. Uh, like sort of Game of Thrones sigils all around you. Yeah. 
and you you kind of look at any one of them and then your cursor goes over it and then it redirects you to that room. Yeah. And so that's kind of the interface where you decide the order that you go into them. Mm-hmm. So we don't have to necessarily talk about all 10 of them because we might be here for a while, but I'm curious for you to just walk me through your journey. What was the first one you saw? What was the last one? Were there any meaningful connections from one to the immediate next one you did? Just what were highlights mm-hmm. of your particular journey? Yeah, um, just just to kind of talk to you about what the ambiance is in this like selection process. I absolutely thought Game of Thrones sigils and also anyone who's done uh, talking about literature uh, on Pottermore to pick your Patronus. It's that exact environment. You're in like this Birchwood forest. There's like so clearly they just darkness. found stock, stock footage of forest at night. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, okay. So I got in and the planner in me was like, I know they do this show or offer this show every half hour. And I know there's 10 libraries I need to see. And I remember our guide was saying, if you want to get out of a library, you can press a little button on your headset, but know that like, if you don't, it'll naturally end on its own and you're brought back to the main page. So I got into the goggles and I kind of had to like, you know, look around this selection space first. I'm like, okay, there's some stars at night. There's like a, you know, woods below me. And then, okay, this is the sigil, the sigils around us or whatever. And I started being like, okay, I can't waste time in here. I got to see these libraries because I don't know. The last thing I want is to, to leave this experience, not having seen a library. Right. So the, the tourist in me was like the, the Disney world goer was like, okay, what's your itinerary? You're going to hit all of these rides. You're going to hit all of this, all of these shows. So I was like, I got to hit all the libraries. So I could have just instantly chose the first one in front of me, which I think would have been Ottawa. Um, but I kind of looked to the left and I just got started. So I started with Sarajevo. And then I went clockwise, I think, or counterclockwise in order of sigils. So I didn't, uh, I didn't like explore to find which one I wanted to do. I was like, okay, Jill, you need to make sure you see all these libraries, just go in order. It wasn't until like the third library, I realized once you've gone into a crest, it popped the name of the city underneath it so you know it knows and you know that you hit that library already and if you wanted to return or something you could but i was like we weird so return is a last last resort see so find so funny thing about that before you continue your journey yeah. like i i had the same idea of i want to make sure i hit all of them so i'll do them in order but then i noticed immediately after doing the first one which for me was ottawa which funny is a city i lived in for three years but i never went to the parliamentary library so that's cool um uh, but yeah, so after I did the first one, and then I noticed it said Ottawa underneath the sigil when I returned, and none of the others said the name, I realized, okay, that's how I can keep track. And then I very quickly decided I'm not going to do them in any particular order. I'm going to just choose my own adventure based on which sigil I think looks cool. And I'll use the names <laughs> on the bottom nice. to kind of just make sure that I do get to see all of them before the end, assuming time would permit. So, okay. sorry. Wow. Okay, so you started in Sarajevo, you said. Yeah, and so that one was stunning. Um, basically you're like placed in the center of this like circular hall and there's like a large white staircase, um, on sort of one of the sides of the circle or hexagon or what have you. And then there's, uh, bookcases on flanking the other two sides and then like doors to the outside world 
uh, mirroring this white staircase. And um, yeah, and then Alberto monologues as he does for all of them, basically. And it's a mixture of, in my opinion, each library was like this for me. It was like a mixture of history and storytelling, mm-hmm. or at least some sort of melange of that. Um, and then depending on, you know, where you move your head or what you, uh, where you're looking or what you want to follow in the space sort of is your own adventure to this prescribed audio you're hearing. And so with Sarajevo, um, this one was probably the most stunning artistically for me because he was talking and, um, you know, mainly the thesis of, in my opinion, of this library was him unpacking of when the library went up in flames during um, the Bosnian war, correct? Well, yeah, the kind of trans Yugoslavian Right. And all of them got balkanized in the 90s, yeah. Exactly. So, um, yeah, so he's recounting, kind of introing into the library, and then all of a sudden, like, a cellist descends the stairs and starts playing a cello. And then um, slowly again, he's unpacking this historical moment of going up in flames, and you literally see one by one each shelf of books sort of go up in flames. Um, and then the cellist is still playing. And then you start also hearing war noises in the background and like tanks. And if you look to the door, there were tanks actually like driving behind the outside doors. And then you got the, the little morsel of information of the individual who was playing the cello during when the library was going up in flames. Correct. Like, yeah. Again, yeah. here's the thing with me and immersive pieces. I'm not I'm not going there to know exactly what is chronologically being spit at me. I kind of just like to just allow information to hit me. So apologies in advance no, if I'm like, good. and this is exactly what was said in this library, because no, like I don't I don't really know. We're, 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 um, our job is not to give a history lesson. What I will say though, like because yeah, Sarajevo, I encountered this library like about midway through my journey. But I will say this was my favorite room of the entire piece. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I what I liked about it so much was that uh, it really made great use of this 360 degree sort of angle. I found with a lot of the rooms, uh, well, necessarily like name specific ones, but I found that it very much was either the interesting thing is happening on this side or so you just kind of you can always like turn around but there's nothing going on there just keep looking at this one it's really like the light in that first prologue room kind of really directing your attention to something specific yeah and then there were others where it's kind of like nothing of major consequences happening anywhere you can turn around and explore all you want but it's more just about the environment than anything that it wants you to see what i loved about sarajevo was that there were two main things of consequence happening that you could choose to look at one or the other. There was the tanks outside the window and there was the cellist on the staircase. Mm -hmm. And which one you choose to look at more, obviously you want to get the whole experience and look at both and like kind of pan around the whole room, especially when the flames start. But choosing to look at the cellist is an active decision to not look at the tanks. And that spiritually is what that cello, this musician who decided to, like quite literally fiddle all Rome burn mm-hmm. in a way, but uh, but yeah, it's 
uh, Miguel said in his narration that this is like the first, what we might call the first historical instance of memory side, the, by burning the library, it's a deliberate attempt to not just wipe a culture out, but destroy memory of culture. Libraries being this place where memory is preserved or books are yeah. preserved and culture is preserved through memorial. Like again, the physicalization of memory in the form of books and the, the palaces we erect to hold them. So yeah. I, what I kind of love is you could just stare out the window and see, oh my God, there's tanks, shit's going down. But, and you could listen to the music and have this lovely soundtrack to it. But you can, I chose to spend most of my time in that room just, you know, glancing at the tanks, glancing at the fire, but just really focusing on the cellist and be like, this is, oh. the, this is the beauty of art that like this, this building was meant mm. to represent, that this artist's decision to play in this moment was very mm. much. And, and yeah, I, I felt like I had the most agency in that room to decide what kind of experience, not just of the VR, you know, digital yeah. sandbox, but also of this moment in history. Like, so right. I, I absolutely love that one. Like, I, I liked a lot of them. I, lo I liked all of them and to yeah. varying degrees, but I think that one was my favorite experience of the entire piece. So I actually focus mostly on the books, the burning books in that one. I didn't want to hear the cellist. I didn't want to see the tanks. I was like, this is where, that was where we talked about the books were protagonists for me. Right. And it, it was just the visualization. It wasn't like some like 1980s or 90s uh, video game where like flame happens and like, bam, everything's in flame. No, it slowly mm -hmm. crept into each window bearing a bookcase. Yeah. And I couldn't look away. And I felt like so bad. I like I was my heart was aching. I was like, I get there's tanks outside. I get there's a cellist playing. But like what's actually happening right now is really shitty. <laughs> like it's heartbreaking. Um, and I yeah, so so that was that was my first room, too. So I, I instantly was like, ooh, each one of these libraries are going to are going to do something to a book or do something to like, yeah, make me feel um, remorse or feel enlightened. Or I was like, oh, this is, and then it wasn't like a disappointment at all, but it was very interesting to see as, as I kind of went library by library, it was totally not that. Like in every room I entered, it wasn't like, I was like, okay, what book am I going to like be attracted to the most? And like, right. Like what character am I going to relate to the most in this one? No, it was like, oh, now this experience is different. This experience is more historical or more cultural. And I'm just standing there absorbing the information or this experience is more visual, right. With like Alexandria, like you're up in the stars and then you're like, yeah. you're in the, the scrolled uh, sort of case that goes up in flames as well. And um, yeah, each, I like that each room wasn't as character immersive or artistically immersive as the other. Cause it allowed, yeah, it allowed just more layers and more nuance to the piece as a whole, I guess, to this collection of libraries, this library of libraries, I guess. <laughs> um as a whole and so specifically kind of going I don't remember what I could not tell you like library two was this library three was no. this library four was that I don't remember I know like I said I went in order so whoever's watching this and has done it as well if you remember the order good for you but I again was just like 
I'm just going to go to the next room and let stuff hit me. And I was, I, I had very interesting, like afterthoughts from each of them. Like one of my favorite libraries from an aesthetic point of view was the one in Austria. I loved like the, the, how it was so light. Like there was windows, uh, you know, like the, there was like a, a pastel sort of like Baroque, I guess would be the period of, or like, where it's almost kind of, I don't remember if that yeah, one was Baroque. It gave me like Marie Antoinette vibes, like the same yeah. aesthetic of Kirsten Dunst, Marie Antoinette, like the pastels, like kind of, I felt like I was like in a candy shop that was like a library. Like it was, and, uh, and that was refreshing too, because this thing was called library at night. And I, I love it's like daytime. light spaces. I'm all like, give me all the lights. And so like, that was, yeah, it was like a daytime experience. And, and then having just like the meditative vibes of monks kind of walking in and out and being the only ones able to touch the books and leaving. And you hear the birds outside. Like this was a very like breath of fresh air kind of thing. Um, and then you feel like you're on like the set of, of, um, Guardians of the Galaxy 3 when you're like placed into the Alexandria library where you're literally happening yeah. in space. <laughs> and then, but you get, you know, from there, you move from being up in the sky to, like I said, being literally behind some of the OG scrolls that were then, that then get caught on fire and you're now trapped in this box and you're like, oh my God, I, I'm burning with these books. And then they flip you to what that library looks like today. And again, you're back in space and you have an aerial view. So some libraries were like that, where it kind of was episodic, almost like you're riding star tours in, in Disney World. Um, but, but then you have something like a Mexico City where you're just standing in the main corridor, looking above, looking around you and taking in yeah. information. The big skeleton ahead of you. There's dancers to this side. That yeah. was one that, like, I thought was very, like, very visually nice, and it's a beautiful space, but I, it's kind of the example in my mind that I go to when I talked about Sarajevo, by contrast, other ones where you're just like, okay, is something going to happen? What do I look at? The dancing was happening from beginning to end with, like, no change. The, yeah. There were people walking through, like, again, lovely environment, but I was kind of waiting to be like, I think that, that one is also the second one I encountered, because the first one was Ottawa. And that one has like a very clear bird show that yeah. the, the nice lady shows up to open up the Birds of America books. And, you know, she flips each page and then suddenly that bird shows up in, and uh, she like gives yeah. it something very three-dimensional to look at. Like, so mm -hmm. then going to Mexico City right after, I was expecting halfway through the room, there would be something like the bird show. And then yeah. there wasn't, which was like fine, but it kind of, it made some rooms in my mind more dynamic than others. And I don't think that's a problem. It just kind of really, I found the really memorable ones were the ones that kind of had some kind of either narrative element like Alexandria, where it takes you from, you know, the cosmos to ancient Egypt to contemporary yeah. Egypt or uh, ones like Sarajevo, where it's just like, I am going to experience this art in the abyss of destruction. Yeah. Um, One yeah. thing that's, Popping into my brain too, and again, maybe this is pivoting a bit on the journey we're going. I'm going into another stack of the library. Um, to me, I felt there were were an every library, like I said, every experience was so different, yet so rich in its own way. Mm -hmm. But I felt if I were to collectively look at this piece from a bird's eye view, out stepping outside of the library, outside of the piece, there was a theme of 
and not at the same time, but the theme of either death, neglect, or isolation, or intimidation for me. Sure. And the reason why I kind of anchoring in those four is because I don't, I think each library either has one of those themes present or is trying to unpack one of those themes or maybe has tidbits of every one of those themes. Um, and what's really interesting and how this piece is on now and potentially, as Ryan said, running until June 26th, maybe even beyond. But, um, and this was also sprinkled in their advertising too of, coming outside of the pandemic or being still very much in the pandemic, but uh, sort of breaking out, blossoming out of the isolation perspective of the pandemic. Um, And, you know, that alone, like to me, I, I kind of meditating on this piece. And as we're talking it out, it's like very interesting to me of like a library, which technically is like a little micro world. It's packed with, so many things, so many different genres, so many different types of books from different time periods. There is no way that you can step into the libraries that are a part of this experience. So the 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 grandia grandiosity, is that a word of each of each library? There's no way you can go in and fully explore. Similarly, like there's no way you can do that in the world. Uh, or you can try really hard, but like there's probably going to be little nicks in your plan. Um, and yeah. And so I think there's an intimidation also just of, of individual going back. What does it mean to go back into the world? What does it mean to take the vulnerable step into a library, which can be very intimidating. There's, you don't know where to start. There's actually a member, a moment in this piece where they're talking about like, um, how do you know like where to start or like what to read, you know, and, and then sprinkled in a couple of things that are coming to mind of, of like in Copenhagen, you see all the ghost apparitions on the outside of the library. What you find out about this library is that a lot of these books aren't even documented anymore. They're, they're, they're known as the forgotten books. And yet you look down and there's a bunch of individuals using this library now solely as a space of study. And they all have their laptops open and it's like they're getting virtual library access now, as opposed to like cracking a spine on actual books. So there's a loss there. And we talked about Sarajevo, like things going up in flames. There's a loss there. Even the the library in Japan, it's a lovely space, but it's it's engrossed in, in like a forested area that's isolated. And it's, that's fine. That's lovely. But again, I felt myself being like, there's only ever people exploring if they decide to explore to that remote section of that specific forested area otherwise these books are alone and so yeah so I felt I feel like this place this piece definitely resonates now I mean I think it always will because again another paraphrasing from the piece of like books will outlast all of us essentially because they're just they they, yeah, once they're created, unless they're burned or act- actively destroyed. So, yeah, so I, I, that was kind of just like oh. a spiral, but. No, oh, it's okay. Like, I guess to kind of just pick up on this, like, just to talk about a few other rooms that I thought were interesting. Like, I don't think we have time to really unpack all of them, but mm-hmm. uh, I want to talk about janitors since you brought it up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, there were two libraries in particular that featured janitors prominently. 
One of them was Washington, D.C., uh, the Library of Congress, and the other was the Copenhagen Library that you were just talking about with the ghosts. And I actually, just in the happenstance of my journey, I encountered these back-to-back, kind of roughly in the middle of the journey. So I had my little janitor interlude in the middle of my trip. Um, and I, again, you talked about like what's real, what's not, who are actors, what's staged. You know, it's possible to think that, oh, the the janitors are just like, yep, we are filming this at night when the main population isn't there. So of course the janitor is just doing their business. But I feel like to me, this piece is a little too manicured and too precise to, you know, I don't think it's an accident that there are janitors in these shots. They could have told the janitor, listen, we're filming here. Can you come back in an hour? But Mm -hmm. I, I think it's very deliberate that in these two rooms in particular, we get to see a janitor. And especially because DC is the one I saw right before Copenhagen. Uh, we're kind of, we start on the top of the dome and we're slowly descending down to the ground floor of the library. And we, we start with like this, like, uh, this artwork that's on the ceiling. And then we go to like these like crests of different cultures and what they represent in the eyes of the American Republic, uh, from the history of Egypt and the invention of writing to, uh, the cultivation of science to perfection in the USA, this sort of, uh, narrative journey through these murals. And then we get to the sculptures of the great men in history and uh, uh, how um, Engel said in his uh, narration that like uh, each of these statues are not only the paraphrasing again, but not only a testament to uh, the greatness of these figures, but they are a monument to the less canonical figures who don't get represented. And it was right when I heard that, that I noticed the janitor standing parallel among these sculptures of the great men in history. So right off the bat, we're like, okay, we're talking about the, you know, for everything that's like featured as, you know, we're forgetting like the millions and millions and billions of people who, you know, don't get to be heralded as great men of history. In fact, anyone who's not a man isn't treated as a great man of history. But then we get this janitor who on one hand is standing in for those forgotten masses, but at the same time is in this moment standing among those great men in history. Mm-hmm. And it like I think there's just something really beautiful about that. And then the next room I did immediately after that was Copenhagen, where you know we're living among the ghosts, but who's standing on the same plane as the ghosts? It's this janitor uh, lady who is just like cleaning the doors. She is standing on the level that the actual main public, the living public, is not able to access. Sorry, you want to chime in? Well, I think I'm going to mention the big P word again. We are now living in. Uh... We are living in a historical moment. We are living in a pandemic. Yes. And I think the, to me, now that you're saying this out, the role of the sanitizing engineers in these libraries you're talking about are now becoming sort of like historically stamped in. Like quite literally, it's it's funny. Yeah, like I didn't focus as much on what you're talking about in the Washington DC one. But like, absolutely, that janitor cleaning that space is a frontline worker. And like frontline workers over the last couple of years have been our heroes. And I think there's also something neat to this present this sort of like, a bit of take you out of it, sanitizing, um, and I don't mean sanitizing in a in a negative connotation because I think that can that can come across. But like, what does it mean? Like how precious it is that preservation of text and preservation of space 
is needed, you know, and I think it, it, it sort of gives a bit of a protagonist role to those janitors that I now unpacking it. I don't think it is happenstance. I think it, it adds, it definitely adds a sprinkle of like reality. Like we, you know, more than ever, we're seeing, uh, janitors, sanitation folks all, all over wherever you go, because we're living in the middle of a global respiratory pandemic where spaces and services need to be sanitized. So there's a literal sort of reality in that. But I think, yeah, I think knowing that, um, like you're saying in Copenhagen, that same janitor stands amongst these forgotten books or these forgotten apparitions, there's kind of like the forgotten heroes of our present day, which a lot of the time are frontline healthcare workers, janitors, etc. And then a different perspective, but cutting from the same cloth a bit in, in Washington of this man who is standing amongst these sculpted men who have been perished long eons ago. The, he is he is the one that is keeping he's the one presently that is keeping this space alive so who's the real hero right um the the janitors are just as much custodians of this space as the librarians who operate it it's all i think it's flattening this idea of what does it mean to preserve and maintain books and knowledge and culture isn't just the, the curatorial exercise of i decide which books go here and undertake the exercise of circulation and what yep. it does it does not get circulated uh it is yeah it is all well because you, you learn you you learn that too yeah. and again me just being able having the experience of being in uh being in like old european libraries or um colleges or universities etc cetera, etc cetera, where you you know you learn the sort of like intense meticulous care that goes into preserving a book right preserving pages how there is some like it's a light sensitivity that has to be at a certain degree for this. Right. And, and so it's a very delicate process. It literally is like rearing a baby. Like how do you preserve these sort of ancient relics and pieces of information that have sort of been foundation, like founding pillars of our textual existence. Right. And so, yeah, like, I feel like I didn't pay as much attention to the janitors, but I'm so glad you brought it up because like that absolutely to me, that's, that's what they stood for symbolically. Like, yeah. We are, we've been talking for like, I believe over an hour now. I don't mm-hmm. know if you have any, maybe last thoughts, any something up or another room that you really wanted to talk about, but didn't get to mention. Um, um I think I just like, I would love to, to s- experience this again, if I could. Um, I probably, I think I would like to leave like time before like I I like now that we are talking this out like there is so much I can meditate on just from my seeing the project at first glance but I I wouldn't mind like experiencing it again because I always I just what I always feel when I'm in an immersive experience I always feel like I'm missing something and and I feel like that is part of it you have to know that you are going to miss something even if it is you know, you're in the library in Austria and you hear the door close, but you didn't actually see the monk go in it because yes. you didn't turn around fast enough. Yeah. But it's like, you have to kind of like, it's okay that I didn't see that. Um, you know, similarly, Mac and I unpacked with Grim Knight. If you followed Cinderella one night, oh, I didn't see the evil witch in Sleeping Beauty's storyline, what they were doing at that time. You know, like there's, you kind of just have to go in with that. But so I, I'm always like, I'd love to see immersive theater more than once to just 
choose my own adventure differently. Um, but yeah, I, I completely enjoyed my experience. And like we mentioned before, I think of someone who, um, loves history, loves traveling. And the past couple of years, we haven't necessarily had the opportunity um, to do that. And maybe even now financially, you still don't have the opportunity to do this. I think this would be a great escape for you. A great, uh, you're literally able to place yourself in areas all around the world, like Ryan said, from the courtesy of a building in Toronto. So for that sheer exploration, absolutely go and, and, uh, yeah, we've unpacked all of the different artistic layers that come with this project too. So, yes. yeah, how about you, Ryan? Uh, I think one like last thing, there's no particular rumor or kind of grand thesis about the thing that I want to say. I, I kind of, one last thing I want to comment on is the prevalence or lack thereof of Lepage's authorship over this piece. Because like adaptation is often a tug and pull of who has the, authorial authority over the piece and are we privileging the uh, the original the author of the source or is the adapter taking on this kind of grand authorship i think what's really interesting is i would have never even thought to go to this if it didn't have lepage's name on it that like mm -hmm. as just like a canadian theater enthusiast i try to see every lepage show because he is kind of part of our culture i know a few years ago he had, uh, came into a bit of a uh, controversy that we don't need to unpack here we talked about this at length in our episode on Coriolanus, the last LePage piece that we actually addressed, clearly his career is doing fine. He hasn't been canceled uh, as much as, you know, the media kind of likes to jump on these uh, controversies as they're unfolding. But I think it's interesting that as much as his name and his brand, the Ex Machina label of having, uh, you know, LePage equals multimedia technology kind of grand spectacle, I feel like... He's very subdued in this piece. Mangel is narrating the pieces himself. They are like verbatim extracts from his book. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he's walking us through his autobiographical relationship to these different libraries, the history of books and reading. Um, and I, I think maybe this is sort of ironic or, or interesting or possibly even calculated, but this, the way that Lepage has, on one hand, been framed as the, you know, the grand creative mind behind this piece, he also effaces himself in it that he, you know, it's not like when you go see something like, you know, Needles and Opium or 887, where you're just like seeing him on stage as himself or as versions of himself in different characters. The reason why I think this show could go on indefinitely beyond uh, June 26th is because, yeah, as long as they have the staff to run it, you don't need to actually have LePage there in the space to encounter it. And, and of course, you don't need Mangel either because he pre-recorded this audiobook a long time ago. And yeah, you really just uh, need the staff and the, the VR headsets kind of are the performers themselves. So I think, yeah, this this is like a nice stepping back behind the curtain for LePage that I feel like I haven't seen in well, most of his work. Or even mm -hmm. Coriolanus could be like an interesting example, which still, while he wasn't on stage and that still was very much branded with his star power the way this is too. But uh, yeah, I think... I, I like this as a next step in his career, especially coming out of the other side of controversy. And I am curious to see where this piece goes, how it kind of gets contextualized into his body of work and what he has next for us. Mm -hmm. And I am grateful. Sorry, I'm sorry, last thing. And no. I am grateful that his name was attached to it because I don't think I would have seen this otherwise. And I really enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. Sorry, what were you going to say? 
Uh, just his last name, Lepage. Like he really yes. was only a, a page in this hey. in this experience. Yeah, I didn't, <laughs> didn't even think of that. That's fun. That's <laughs> me and my names. I'm unpacking the names. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's great so, selection. Uh, yeah, so I think we might bid adieu here. Uh, thank you for mm. those who've stuck with us till the very end. Thank you for following us along our journey. If you had a different experience, we'd love for you to get in the comments and tell us all about it. That's the lovely thing about immersive theater or, or really any theater is that we're always going to have our own subjective perceptions and we'd love to know how things differ, what you thought differently. Um, and of course, if you're watching this on YouTube, like, share, and subscribe. Uh, we will have the link to the production in the description so you can uh, get tickets and we encourage you to see it if you're interested. If, you know, you've made it this far. I hope you're interested. Um, and yes, uh, if you're listening to this as a podcast, like, share, subscribe, whatever people do with podcasts. And uh, yeah, follow Cup of Hemlock on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at COH Theater on all platforms. How about you, Jill? Mm -hmm. Plug your own socials and upcoming projects. Sure. So yes, you can follow my artist Instagram account at Jillian.Robinson96. Um, and I'm just going to let the cat out of the bag of some projects I have coming down the line. Um, I will be a part of a new song cycle piece that is going up at Calgary Fringe Festival this summer. So keep your eyes peeled for promo materials coming up on that. And I also have the privilege and honor with working with my dear friend and friend of the cup, um, Autumn Smith, again this summer. Um, I'll be performing as Olivia in Twelfth Night, an adaptation by um, Autumn herself, obviously based on the Shakespeare classic uh, that's going to be happening at the Gravenhurst Wharf. So if you are traveling this summer to Calgary or Muskoka's, uh, you might get to see yours truly acting um, alongside some super fabulous people. So I'm excited for that. Keep your eyes peeled. More information on my Instagram page. Lovely. Um, mm -hmm. No need to follow me. Just follow Cup of Hemlock or follow Jill because Jill's great. Um, and yes. Shall we close this chapter of these many books in the 10 libraries? We shall. And Cheer. yes. Cheers our bell up. and U of T cups. <laughs> um, thanks so much, folks. Yeah. Thanks for watching.